at things, and that his standard was perfection, right? And that's a very daunting message, and of course we know that, that the solution to that is the grace of Jesus Christ, sacrifice on the cross. <laughs> then last week we were kind of talking more about that kingdom heart, that it's not enough to just do good things, to pray, to fast, to, to give to the poor. It has to be done for the right reasons. It can't be done to glorify ourselves. And what we're going to see today as we get to the last part is that he's now circling back into action. So we get the values right, we get the heart right, but in the end he's going to tell us in no uncertain terms that we have to act on this faith. And by that I mean, and he means, we got to do what he says. we got to do the will of God. This is a Jesus who's going to make us a little uncomfortable because he talks in terms of damnation. Four different ways. He presents that for those who don't do what he says, those who do not live out their faith, damnation. So we're going to explore that. All right, this is a message that's uncomfortable. Whether you're a, 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 a liberal theologian, that's uncomfortable. They don't like to talk about hell and damnation. Right? For those of us who believe firmly 100% that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? This can seem uncomfortable because we don't believe that action should be a prerequisite for salvation, and it's not, right? Works is not a cause for getting saved. But Jesus Christ is very clear, and again, we'll, we'll read the passages and get into it, right? That just as his brother James said, a faith that does not actually exhibit itself in works is not a real faith. That if you, if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that what he says is the Word of God, you're going to do what he says. Or else you don't really believe he's the Son of God, speaking the Word of God. And that is a challenging, challenging message. But the good news is we didn't quite finish chapter 6 last week, so we are going to wrap that with the last piece of chapter 6, which is one of the passages I find most comforting, uh, particularly in times of sort of financial concern. It addresses the issue of anxiety, and, and there are some people, I think, in this church who probably have experienced some anxiety in their lives. And so I think the message here is worth addressing. So these verses here, uh, I want to look at verses 25 to 34 of chapter 6. And I think it's important to realize or remember, you know, in America, we tend to have a little bit of an exaggerated sense of need, right? We tend to think that everything is a, a need. Uh, much of it is really a want. And I point us back to the Lord's Prayer where we, where we were told to pray for daily bread, which really represents what we actually need. And then Jesus is telling us here we can and should trust God for what we need. So he says in chapter 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So he is addressing here basic needs, right? Food and clothing. The very basic things, that daily bread. And he's making an argument from, from the lesser to the greater, is the term for it, where he says, all right, consider these, these birds, right? And, and God takes care of the birds. People are way more important than birds, so God's going to take care of you. So there's no point in being anxious about it. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, um, that was actually quite literal. They would, you know, that's part of how they made heat, right? Gather up certain plants, pack it up, use it for, use it for cooking. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, again, argument from the lesser to the greater. Why worry about clothes? He makes flowers perfectly beautiful. They lack nothing. He will take care of what you need. And again, no reason to worry about it. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now here he's continuing that theme that we've seen throughout chapter 6, right? The heavenly Father knows. So he's continuing to emphasize God is our Father, a personal Father, a caring Father, and he knows. He knows what's in our heart. He knows what we need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So now we're back to this consistent message we've been seeing throughout the Sermon on the Mount of kingdom, 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 focus on God's kingdom. This is the dominant theme of chapters 5 through 9, kingdom of heaven. So we are told to seek first the kingdom of heaven and take care of righteousness, the righteousness that is supposed to be within us, promoting the righteousness out in the world. God will take care of the little things. And then we get to the last verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This, I think, is critical advice. We've talked about it before, but this is really at the essence of anxiety. Most of the time when we're anxious, our anxiety is about stuff that's not just coming up in the next hour or the, or the rest of that day. Most of the time we're being, when we're experiencing anxiety, it's about things that are coming down the pike, a few days away, a few weeks ago, away. Usually anxiety is things we can't actually do anything about. And the point here is, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what is many days off. God will provide, and if we go back to the Lord's Prayer, right, it's our daily bread. He provides on a daily basis for what we need. We don't get to just collect it all on Sunday and store it up for the week. It's not our weekly bread. It's daily bread to deal with the daily problems of the world. Questions about that? Okay, let's talk about chapter 7. We're... I'm going to skip one part, and don't, don't be offended when I skip the part about praying. It's not, it's not praying. It's not super important. It is. 
Um, by all means, I suggest reading that, but we are of limited time, right? So I'm going to talk first about the judging, and then we're going to get into the Jesus' closing section here, the what are we supposed to do about it, right? Which already sounds like we're going to have an interesting discussion. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 are about judgment, about discernment towards others. It features what is probably every non-Christian's favorite Bible verse, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. He has been talking a lot about our heart. He's been talking about what underlies our actions, regardless of whether our actions look good or look bad. And so he's saying there's a big difference between the outward appearance and what's going on in our heart and that God knows what's going on in our heart. He sees what's in secret. He's given us all these valuable insights. And so then I think he knows that our natural temptation about learning all this is to go and apply this teaching to the person seated next to you. Because it's much more interesting to help them stop doing all that sinning stuff. I think he knows this is going to be a temptation. It's a temptation we still see lived out in churches and in Christians today. And and churches tend to go to one of two extremes with regard to this idea of judging sin. The one is to become so hyper-focused on it, so hyper-critical, so ruthlessly judgmental and blind to your own faults. And the other is to say, it's all good. And do nothing about it. Say nothing about it. Between these first six verses, both of those extremes are being addressed. To try and put it into perspective, what is our role as believers when we interact with other people, specifically believers, on matters of sin in their life and sin in our lives? Because Jesus is basically saying both of these two extremes are, are mistakes. All right, so, so verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So as I mentioned, verse 1 is every non-Christian's favorite Bible verse. It might be the only one they know. They love to use it against Christians. Don't be out there judging me. Don't judge me. It is interpreted by them to mean that we're not supposed to call out wrong actions. That we're not supposed to say that things are sins. And that is a wrong interpretation. right? Because to judge in this case, to judge a person, is not about what they're doing. It is to say that this person is guilty before God. This is to condemn them as a human being. That's what we're being told not to do. right? It doesn't mean you don't say that that's a sin, that you help identify a sin in somebody's life. We're supposed to do that. Right? But it's drawing the distinction between condemning the sin and condemning the person. 
This is a critical distinction. And how do I know that it's okay to condemn the sin and that the people who, are, who, who use this verse against Christians are wrong? Because verse 5 says it. Because verse 5 says, after you've taken care of your sin, then get the speck out of your brother's eye. There really was an issue there. We lose that sometimes. Right? We get focused on, on sort of the big part of the message, deal with your own stuff. We miss the part where there really was a speck. There really is something going on in their life. If that's not enough, Matthew chapter 18 describes in detail how you deal with another Christian sinning against you. Right, all of which says there is a place for discerning other people's behavior, discerning that that's a sin. It doesn't mean you get to be wishy-washy and say it's all good. Right? There's plenty of teaching about that. Jesus is not calling us to ignore sin, but he is saying to not be condemning people. He is saying not to be nitpicking. And that, I think, is really the essence of what this passage is about. Meaning, when he talks about specs, he's not talking huge sin here. He's talking little things. He's saying we shouldn't be tearing each other up over little things when we still got stuff to deal with in our own life that's a lot bigger. And he knows us really well. So he knows that we all have stuff in our own life that's a lot bigger. So the point here is deal with the bigger stuff, not... Give all sin a pass. Now, verse 2 is sort of an unusual verse. All right, it says, With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, it's hard to tell the timing, but there was a rabbinical teaching that Jesus may be referring to here. And the rabbinical teaching said that God had two sets of measures he could use to evaluate you with. One was mercy and one was justice. If Jesus is referring to that, that's kind of the imagery he's trying to bring to mind for his listeners, uh, then we sort of say, okay, this, this verse makes sense because most of us naturally would like to be judged with the mercy scales, but we want everybody else to get the justice scales. Right? I need forgiveness, but these other people need justice. And Jesus' point is, no, you, cannot, you can't play that game. If you want to condemn others for their stuff, you need to expect condemnation for your stuff. Now, of course, we have a get-out-of-jail-free card, right, thanks to grace. It wasn't free for Jesus, but free for us. But what he's really calling us to is to use that mercy scale. Remember chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is our call. This is the kingdom value we're supposed to be applying in this case, is the value of mercy. Again, not that we're going to ignore the stuff in somebody else's life, but that we don't condemn them as human beings. We remember the mercy that we want for ourselves, the mercy that we desperately need because we are all full of stuff, and apply that. And so then just some observations on verses 3 through 5. Right? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? So I think it's important to realize he is talking about how we relate to other Christians. Right? We're talking about calling out stuff in their lives. 
I think that's important to note because, well, quite honestly, we know that if you're a non-believer, you've got sin going on. Christians in America keep acting like it's a surprise that non-believers sin. Shouldn't be a surprise. Right? So this is about how we deal with other believers, and it says, point this thing out eventually, because the speck really is there. But before you do that, before you choose to stew over this thing that your, your, your friend, your, your loved one, your, your neighbor, your Sunday school classmate, your, your fellow congregant, uh, congregant does, before you stew on it and stew on it and think about what a terrible person they are and how ungodly and unchristian, how can they even call themselves a Christian? And you're building that up more and more. He says to examine yourself first. Look at your own stuff first. Look carefully. Are there sinful attitudes and behaviors in your life? Potentially that are affecting this very relationship that is so poisoned and that you firmly believe is entirely that other person's fault. And he says, deal with that first. And once you have dealt with that, and by the way, that's not just going to be like a self-help improvement program, right? The only way that really lastingly solves these things is the Holy Spirit. So this is a spiritual issue, right? We got to find it. We got to repent of it. We got to pray through it. We got to get the Spirit's help with that. Then go and help them see the flaw in what they're doing and what they're thinking. Now, this is such incredibly good practical advice on how to deal with relational conflict that we miss. It's easy to understate the spiritual impact, but the practical impact, right, of of pausing, of changing your mindset out of this spiraling cycle of resentment, of doing your stuff and usually realizing you may have something to, to say to that person, too, first. You might need to begin the apologies. It might need to begin with you telling this person who's wronged you how you've wronged them. So it has a lot of power to change the dynamic of the relationship. It has a lot of power to take somebody who is ready to be on defense and disarm them. So it's good practical advice as well as excellent spiritual advice. But then in verse 6, Jesus talks about the extreme opposite. The case where you're so blind to the sin of another person, so blind to their obstinacy, so blind to the way their heart is closed, to the gospel, to the good news, to what you're saying, that you just expend all your effort on someone who is only going to treat you like garbage for it. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. How many times as we go through the gospels will we see Jesus say, you go, you deliver the message, you move on. You don't stay stuck. You said, say, this is in God's hands. You've planted your seeds. You move on. You trust in the Lord to come along, have someone else come along and water and cultivate. Instead, we get stuck in our relational conflicts. We get stuck in bad patterns. We get discouraged by those who reject what we have to say. And Jesus says, don't. Don't. This is also a call to be discerning. 
right? Just as we are called to discern the mess in somebody else's eye and called to discern the mess in our own lives, we're being called to discern when this just isn't the right season. We've tried our best. We've done what we can. We'll keep praying for them. We move on. Doesn't mean there won't be another day. But that we don't, we don't tear ourselves up on this. Questions about this part? Okay, so next are some excellent verses on prayer. In the interest of time, I'm going to jump over them. Uh, as you know, we, we sort of, this is a, a survey, right? We don't do every verse, verse by verse. We've kind of done almost every verse of the Sermon on the Mount. That's not how we're going to be um, the rest of the way. Because as I think I shared at the beginning, the goal is that over the course of a year, as we look at all the Gospels, we will put together the mosaic of Jesus as we encounter him in many different ways, many different places. Um, so we will start moving a bit more uh, between chapters and verses. And so I think what we, what we see at this conclusion now, we come to the last half of chapter 7, where I expect to spend the rest of our, our time together tonight. And I think the question is really, okay, what do we do about this? What do we do with all this? And Jesus says this cannot just be an intellectual exercise. You can't just come on Wednesday night and learn lots of potentially interesting facts about the Sermon on the Mount and then go on about your business with no change. Right? Faith is about change. Faith causes change. It doesn't make us perfect. right? We will not be perfect this side of eternity, but it causes change. So through the course of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talked a lot about why we do things. That's critically important. He's talked about not only not doing the wrong things, but not thinking the wrong things. He's talked about not just doing the right things, but doing them for the right reasons. But the essence, as he gets to it at the end, is the heart has to do something. There has to be a result from this, or else it hasn't really encountered Jesus. It hasn't really changed. So chapter 7, verse 12, we know this is the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the first we get a, here's a, here's a do, and, and the first thing he says do is only do what you want people to do to you. This is, actually, interestingly, not unique to him. He is not the first person to present the golden rule in this time frame. It is interesting. He says this summarizes the essence of the law and the prophets. But what I want to really focus on tonight are the, the four pairs of alternatives that he presents for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Four pairs of alternatives about what we do with this. Because basically he says we have choices in what we do with this information he's given us. And the choice we make is critical. So it begins in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. All right, so this is the first pair. Right? And I'm out of board space, but that's okay. We're just going to say narrow gate. Interestingly, he doesn't give much 
commentary on what he means here. We'll have to figure that out for ourselves. What he says here is that there is a narrow gate and a narrow path. <clears throat> now, I think if we look at, say, John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If we look at John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think we can probably agree Jesus is the narrow gate. But then he says there's a narrow gate, but there's also a narrow path, a hard path that leads to life. He's the gate. Once we're through, we're saved. But what he promises is that the rest of our lives will be a narrow path, will be a hard path. The path of faith will not be easy. But I want to make sure it's clear what he says, right? It is faith that saves us. Those verses from John are clear. It is faith that saves us. Only faith. But the message that he is giving us and will really unfold over the next three pairs is that if our faith is real... If our hearts are truly regenerated, there will be evidence of it in our actions. Doesn't mean we'll all suddenly be Mother Teresa. But there will be change. There will be difference. And again, it comes down to the fact that if we believe that he is the Son of God, we're going to do what the Son of God says. Not perfectly, but with his help, better and better over the years. If we, there is no change whatsoever, then it seems difficult to believe that we take seriously that he's the Son of God. Now, I can't judge. None of us can judge. Only God knows. And the good news is, Jesus has been really clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount. God knows exactly what's in our hearts. He makes the difficult judgment. We do not. So we don't get to look at the evidence of a person's life and be like, I don't think there's enough evidence. I'm not sure you're really saved. That's God's business, not ours. But it doesn't mean that, as we saw in the earlier verses, that we shouldn't be helping a brother or sister out if we see they're struggling a bit on how to do it, on what they're supposed to be doing. So we got the intro and the narrow gate and the hard path. And then we get three pairs that are, in case we missed the point in verses 13 and 14, become increasingly disturbing in some ways. Verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The outward product reflects the inward condition. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by your, their fruits. 
Now, he's most directly talking about false teachers, false prophets, right? but the principle that he is teaching about fruit is a principle that is taught throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament. Right? John the Baptist, I think, has already made references to this before uh, Jesus ministry began, this very same concept of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. So this very simple test. You can have fruit that looks good for a little while if you're still bad on the inside, but ultimately regenerated on the inside bears fruit on the outside. Now, that fruit looks different, right? Some people are oranges, some people are grapefruits, some people are, you know, cherries, right? Different fruit, different size, different people, different kinds of fruit. But there will be fruit. And if it's rotten and maggoty and, you know, has worms crawling out of it, probably says something about your inner heart condition. So there's a limit. Like when you see a perpetually angry, unhappy Christian, you got to wonder what's going on in their hearts. We can't judge them. It's not our place to judge them as human beings. But it's an opportunity to come alongside them and say, what's going on? What's going on in your heart? It's an opportunity for us to evaluate the evidence of our own lives. And what does that say about our attitudes? Right? If we are perpetually angry, perpetually bitter, perpetually resentful, if we are unhappy all the time, if there is nothing good coming out of our lives and, and somehow we step out of ourselves long enough to realize we've got this sort of toxic cloud following us, or like Pigpen or something in Charlie Brown, <coughs> say there's something wrong with my relationship with God. There's something wrong with my faith. I, I may have got all the knowledge, but I may not have actually really put my faith in him. I may not have really, truly turned my heart over to Christ. But at the very least, to realize that there's something wrong with our relationship with the Lord when the fruit is bad. Even if we've been coming to church every Sunday for for 50 years. And it's worth evaluating because Jesus is talking about damnation here. All this talk of fire cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't think he's exaggerating, and I don't think he's really just giving figurative image here. He's saying something bad's going to happen. The New Testament and the Old Testament consistently speak of fire in God's judgment. This is a serious issue. Now, it doesn't mean we can't have bad days. We're going to have bad days. Right? Christians are going to have bad days. When you have a bad day, it doesn't mean you're not saved. Right? The good news is when you're saved, you're saved. Right, Jesus Christ is in your heart. The Holy Spirit seals and guarantees you. Right, So don't question yourself just because you have a bad day. But if you've got a bad two years, and I don't mean like bad things happening to you. I mean you're an unpleasant person doing nasty things to people. You need to look at your heart. You need to relate to God. You need to repent of whatever it is that's chewing you up. Because this issue matters clearly. Again, we don't like to think of Jesus this way, but this is Jesus right there. He's saying, look, you're either going to bear good fruit 
or you're that diseased tree that might get cut down, that's going to get cut down and burned down. Then he goes on. Verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So these are people who seemingly have been claiming to be Christians. These are even people who've done miracles, right? Potentially rock stars, right? Maybe they get a mega church or something. And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And why are they workers of lawlessness? Why does Jesus not know them? Because they didn't do the will of God. And if they believed in Jesus, if they knew Jesus, truly knew him, truly believed who he was, the Son of God, truly believed who he was, right? Present at creation, eternal, everything made through him, everything held together by him. If they truly believed that about him and knew him, they would want to do what God wanted them to do. They would want to do the things that the Bible says to do. And so if their compulsion in life is to, no matter how religious they are, no matter how churchy they are, and yet nonetheless, when they're in private, they're just completely different people. They don't do the things God tells them to do. They don't do the things taught in the Bible. Do they really know Jesus? We can't judge that. It's not our place to judge. But they need to be concerned, and we should be concerned for them. We should be able to, again, go alongside them and say, hey, what's going on in your heart? Can I talk to you about the good news of Jesus Christ? We should never assume that somebody who's been going to church their whole life is truly has a relationship with the Lord. It never hurts, you know? I don't think we get tired of hearing the gospel. Mostly because we keep forgetting it really, really fast. We remember it mentally, intellectually, but how quickly do we forget the gospel in our hearts and the way we deal with other people? And then we say, once again, right, last, the consequence of that, depart from me, eternal separation, right? We call this hell. Not a popular concept, but this is what Jesus says. So we encounter him, He's condemning those to an eternity of separation from him. And then he concludes, everyone then who hears these words of mine, these words immediately, these words, the Sermon on the Mount, and does them. And I think here too, think about the, the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? He tells the disciples, go to teach, to obey everything I commanded. Right? He has a consistent testimony of the importance of doing what he says, right? Don't just teach them everything he commanded. Teach them to obey everything he commanded. So who does these words, right? Hears them and does them. We'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
So he's moved, right? He's moved from showing good fruit. He's moved to obeying God. Now he's gone to saying, obeying my words. This, by the way, is another powerful God claim, right? He's just put himself on, on par with God, right? No other prophet ever did this. The prophets would say, this is the word of God. Do this word of God. Here he says, do my word. If you do not, when the storm comes, disaster, right? This is the fourth image of disaster and destruction. This is the fourth pair. So four times he is repeated, do these things that I'm teaching you. Do these things God's commanding you. And you're saved, right? And he, we're guaranteed of that. And the Holy Spirit guarantees us. But for those who do not do these things, who do not make the best spirit-filled effort to do this, right? And nobody's, we're not perfect. Thankfully, God forgives our sin because we've got a great lawyer as believers. But if we have a nominal faith that has no works, no fruit, no anything flowing out of it, and never does. And I would say it can take it can take a while once you really believe. It can take a while to build a little momentum to get some fruit coming out of you. But but once you get going, right? No, none of that's happening. If it's just a nominal faith, then that is a faith that is dead. It is not living faith. This is where James, his brother, I think, gets this very well. All right? Faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean the works are essential to get faith. Not at all. Doesn't mean works are essential to get saved. Not at all. But it means that if there is no evidence in our life that anything's changed, we may not really truly believe. We might just have a lot of head knowledge. James addresses that fairly humorously, right? Where he says, oh, you know, God is one? Great. So do demons. Demons have more head knowledge about Jesus than we do. If you look at the Gospels, and we will do this as we go through this series, right? particularly in the Gospel of Mark, the demons are set up as like expert witnesses because they know more about Jesus than the people do. So Mark actually sets them up as, as authoritative witnesses to Jesus Christ because the demons always know who he is. But the thing that makes them a demon is they don't kneel before him. They will not bow before the Creator. They will not bow before the Son. And so they're demons. Jesus is pretty stark here. Only damnation awaits a nominal Christian who shows no evidence, no fruit, other than the Jesus fish on his or her car. And that is a tough message. Questions about this part? Okay, I want to read the last two verses because they are the excellent wrap-up and then the setup for what's coming next. And when Jesus finished this say these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is very important, right? I've told you Matthew is a fantastic author. Being inspired by the Holy Spirit always helps. They are astonished by the reality of who Jesus is, right? Because he really is authoritative. They are astonished by what he says. They are astonished by how he's saying, because the, the scribes always just do this whole long legal chain of Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they never express an opinion of their own. And Jesus is just out there. Boom, boom, boom. 
But because Matthew's a great writer, he's also using this fact of what the crowd said as the transition to what he does in chapter 8 and 9, which is all the different ways Jesus demonstrates his authority. Right? We talked at the very beginning, authority is one of the big ideas in the Gospel of Matthew, the authority of Jesus. So he has taught with authority for three chapters. And the people say, well, that's amazing. Well, it's only amazing if you can back it up. Otherwise, you're just a nut job. And so chapter 8 and 9, we are going to see Jesus do a whole lot of different miracles, demonstrating lots of different authority. Matthew's actually going to weave that word authority a lot in chapters 8 and 9 to make sure we get the point that he can back up these words, that he is who he says he is. And so if you get a chance this week, I'd encourage you to read chapters 8 and 9. We're only going to sample some of these miracles next week um, to get the flavor of, of sort of the different variety of ways that he, he demonstrates authority by demonstrating powers over different kinds of problems, right? The kind of things that a pagan would say, I'd have to go to God, you know, fake God number one to get this fixed and fake God number two to get this fixed and fake God number three to get this fixed. And Jesus does them all to make sure we get the point he has authority. Any questions? Well, let's pray real quick. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we come and bow down before the authority of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, we are grateful for the salvation we have through faith in him as Lord and Savior. We are grateful that that is what it takes because we know that we could not do it on our own. But Lord, we understand too that there is a responsibility to live out this faith. So help us to be faithful in this area, Lord. We, it could be hard to do, easier for some and harder for others. Pray that you would work in our lives to help us be more faithful to what your son has called us to be. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank <laughs> you.